Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I hope you're hanging in there in terms of dealing with the coronavirus crisis and doing everything you can to stay safe and also sane, because this global shutdown is very challenging to our mental health as well. For me personally, the crisis has really hit home these past couple weeks, as I have four friends who have had a friend or relative die because of COVID-19. And I just want to say a little bit about each of them here up at the top. My running buddy, Eileen Goldman, lost her brother-in-law, Steve Dreyer, who was 69 years old. He taught chemistry at New York City Technical College in Brooklyn, cultivated a personal spiritual practice, and was married to his wife, Eileen's sister, Bobby. My friend, Harry Hambury, lost his aunt, Carmen Smith. She was 73. Carmen was a retired school teacher with a passion for books, ideas, and teaching. Harry's partner, Deepak, described Carmen as a liberal who loved Lincoln and hated Trump. My cousin, Yoni Bloomberg's girlfriend, lost her aunt, Dr. Deborah Cantor Nagler. Dr. Nagler was 66. She had a long career in education, including teaching at the college level and co-authoring a book on STEM education at the age of 65. And in one of the other painful aspects of this reality, they had to hold a virtual funeral for her, but 250 people actually tuned in. And my friend and former coworker, Connie Chung, lost her friends, Scotty Blanks. He was just 34 years old, had no previous symptoms and appeared completely healthy. He and Connie had been friends since their days at community college in Pasadena. The LA Times obituary quoted one of Scotty's friends as saying, he was a good dancer, he loved to sing, and he especially loved Beyonce. So those are just four of the more than 125,000 people around the world who have now died from COVID-19, 25,000 in the United States alone. I mean, think about it, that's a death toll that's 700% bigger than what we experienced on 9-11. And it absolutely didn't have to be this way. But the incompetence, arrogance, and nationalism of this president resulted in the U.S. being woefully unprepared and then slow to respond, making the crisis so much worse than it had to be and has absolutely led to an untold number of deaths that could have been prevented. So if it wasn't clear before, it's definitely clear now, this man in the White House has absolutely got to go. And that's what we'll be talking about in today's episode, how to get him out. And for that conversation, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you holding up, and what's on tap for our listeners today? Hi, Steve. I have to say I'm still um, really just, you know, I was just so affected by the stories you just shared, and thank you for doing that. Uh, my, my heart really goes out to all of your friends. I do have friends as well who have lost their loved ones, are in the same position, and I realize that many of our listeners are probably in the same position, so again, my, my just condolences to everybody uh, I've just been working on trying to channel my feelings of understandably human feelings of sadness and grief uh, and, and definitely anger, <laughs> trying to put those into some sort of action, something healthy for my own well-being and my family's well-being. And for me, part of that has been actually trying to slow down, trying to actually be a lot more mindful about the news and social media I do, giving myself intentional breaks and how I engage with that kind of information, but slowing down my lifestyle in general, taking time for self-care, and been trying to take time to talk to friends one-on-one. -on -one. I think people have said it's been interesting how many phone calls people are making more, and I think I've been doing the same 
phone calls, more Zoom one-on-one conversations. Yeah, and then I also think just, you know, part of the work we do has, I've always said this, it's been such a life like raft for me in these hard political times, but especially now. So even doing the podcast is something I really look forward to and where I feel I can work with our team to put all these energies, all these emotions into a positive solution. So like you said, um, right now, it's just everything that we are witnessing is just highlights even more the importance of us having competent and caring elected leaders in this country. So that brings us to, let's talk about some of the major developments that have happened lately in national politics. Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race last week, and that means Joe Biden, not entirely surprising, the writing was a bit on the wall for sure, is going to be the Democratic presidential nominee, and he'll be going up against Trump in November. So many of us know Biden has significant political weaknesses, and we're definitely going to get dig really deeply into today is it is becoming increasingly clear that his choice of a running mate for vice president could go a long way towards shoring up his weaknesses and increasing the odds of the Democrats winning this fall. So we're going to dive into discussing the possible VP picks for Biden, specifically six women who have been the most mentioned in the media, on social media, by pundits and analysts as his possible choice for a running mate. And to join us in that conversation today, we're going to be joined by our favorite data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega. Hey, Julie, so how are things going on the East Coast? Uh, so we're hanging in there, and we made it through yesterday's tornado scare. If it's not one thing, it's another. But, but um, being a parent during this time definitely adds a whole other level of challenge. Uh, but that's a topic for another time. Yeah, definitely. I've been joking that I'm pretty close to setting up a tent in my own backyard so I can get some alone living time. But it still gets pretty cold at night in Berkeley, so maybe in two weeks I'll go through with that plan. But yeah, I hear you. All right, let's jump into today's topic, shall we? Steve, we've been talking. There's been a lot of chatter on the media and social media about who Biden's considering as VP choice and who he might choose, when he might decide. And you just wrote a great piece for the New York Times, an opinion piece that ran this week on what Biden needs to do in his VP pick process. And everybody should check that out. That opinion piece is titled, It's Obvious Whom... Joe Biden should pick as vice president and came out on April 14th. So Steve, before we get into all that, I wanted to check in with you big picture wise. Can you give us an overview on where things stand right now with that? Yeah. So now it's getting real and getting serious, right? So after many weeks of, you know, hints and winks and nods, the different people, the process for picking the actual running mate is, is officially underway. And so Biden is setting up a vice presidential selection committee and staffing that up into a grouping of people who will do the vetting of the various people he's considering. And he's being more uh, transparent about the process than people sometimes have been in the past. And we have a clip of what he said three weeks ago on this uh, when he was on The View. Uh, Is there a short list of women you can talk to us about that maybe you'll start vetting soon? Well, we are going to start vetting soon, and there are there is a short list, meaning somewhere between uh, there's about 12 to 15 women who I think would be qualified to be president tomorrow. Um, but I think we're going to narrow the list down to about 11. We're going to start vetting soon. But what I don't want to do, Whoopi, is to start to name people and then raise yes. expectations. Okay, so we know Joe 
doesn't want to name people, as we just heard him say, but that doesn't mean we can't. So that's what we're going to do today, right? So what do we know about who's on that list? Right. So over the past several months, he's dropped different hints in various speeches. And, you know, I and others have been talking to friends who are connected to the campaign, people who are high up in the campaign, um, different reporters and other um, consultants and whatnot. And so it certainly looks like there are six people who are being the most seriously considered. So that's Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris, Gretchen Whitmer, people don't know, the governor of Michigan, Catherine Cortez Mastow, who's the senator from Nevada, Amy Klobuchar, and Elizabeth Warren. And then there's another cluster of people whose names are sometimes mentioned. So Val Demings, black congressman from Florida, she was part of the House impeachment team. Michelle Lujan Grisham, the governor of New Mexico and a Latina. And every now and then you hear about Tammy Duckworth, the one Asian American they throw in. Um, she's a senator from Illinois, a veteran who uh, lost both her legs in the Iraq war. But from all the intel that I've been able to gather, it really looks like those first six are the ones who are most in the mix and the, and the clearest front runners. Thanks. And so the question is, which person, and this is what a lot of people are wondering, is which person will be the most helpful to Biden and essentially the Democratic presidential ticket to win in November? And Julie, I wanted to ask you, I know that you were a consultant on a poll done recently for a group called Donor of Color Action. Is that right? And can you tell us about it? Sure. So um, our friend, Shindy Maxton, helped start a first of its kind network. And that's the Donors of Color Network. It's a national community of high net worth people of color who are focused on racial equity. And that network has also created an advocacy organization that's called the Donors of Color Action. And they wanted to explore the viability of adding a woman of color to the ticket and specifically whether it would help or hurt Biden's prospects this fall. So in that poll, we surveyed voters in Michigan and in Wisconsin, which are obviously two of three states that Trump surprisingly won in 2016 um, and tipped the Electoral College toward him. And what were the results? Um, so we can discuss it more as we talk about each of the six women. But the big takeaway is that in those Midwestern states, which are overwhelmingly white, two of the top three candidates are people of color. And that those are Stacey Abrams and Kamala Harris, along with Elizabeth Warden, who's really strong in those two states. And interestingly, there's a lot of kind of either or framing of the VP pick. So usually it's posed as either you pick someone who can appeal to people of color or you pick someone who runs well with suburban white women. And what we see is that that framing is usually a proxy for are you going to pick a white woman or a woman of color. But what the poll found was that Stacey and Kamala actually do better across the full racial spectrum than do Klobuchar or Whitmer. Now that's definitely interesting and definitely not, I think, how a lot of people are thinking. I think that what you mainly do hear people talk about when they talk about Stacey and Kamala is in terms of how they can help black voters, but they don't understand and don't see their strength with non-black voters. And to know that they do have a strength with non-black voters is really fascinating and, and really good news overall. I think it's great to hear. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of ways to look at this and a lot of, it's great that we have this data. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is how the various possible running mates, how they stack up in that context. So let's start with Stacy. And Stacy, by the way, as we've mentioned before, was our first guest on our first episode of our podcast. 
so she has a special place with us in our hearts. And I wanted to find out from your point of view, Steve, what are her relative strengths and weaknesses overall in this particular contest? Right. Yeah. So our, our, our podcast has rocketed her to the top of the vice presidential. Yes. Sport. We're going to take full credit. for. Um, so one of the things that I did for the op-ed in the Times was to compare the actual track records of the candidates in their prior races. So you're seeing now the poll Julia mentioned, and you can see other polls, and even the best polls are educated guesses about how people will behave in the future. But we actually have significant amount of data on how voters have performed in real life in past elections. And so that mo many of these candidates have run in statewide elections, and then there's exit poll data from that and uh, uh, the electoral numbers from that. So it allows you to compare the demonstrated track record and strength. And so when you look at Stacey's results in Georgia, as it compared to the other candidates, how they did in their statewide races, Stacey's track record is stronger, in, in, in most cases significantly stronger than the, all the others in the areas where Biden is weakest. And that is most pronounced in terms of young people where he had extraordinarily low numbers and very poor performance in the primaries. Latinos, he lost every single state, uh, the Latino vote to Sanders. And African-Americans, and although he won the lion's share of African-American votes, having enthusiastic turnout of African-Americans is gonna be what's critical in the fall. And that's one of the things that, we're gonna make, that I think is gonna be critical. That was the mistake Hillary made, thinking she was strong among African-Americans but not having enthusiasm. And then the drop-off was actually uh, cataclysmic for her candidacy and really for the, for the country. So that's what Stacey has going for. She has this track record proven through her past performance, young people, Latinos, African-Americans. Yeah, definitely good to be reminding folks of that. Um, I think, again, I wanted to recommend everybody who's listening to check out Steve's opinion piece that came out in the New York Times earlier this week. Because in it, Steve, you really break all of this down and it's a, it's a really thorough analysis and you really spell out all the reasons why ultimately that you do feel that Stacy has the full package. And we know Stacy is really inspirational. She has a great track record in terms of high turnout among young people, African-Americans, and also Latinos and Asian-Americans. Although probably a lot of people don't quite know about the way that she can get Latinos and Asian Americans to turn out. So I wanted to ask you, Steve, what are some of Stacey's challenges and weaknesses that you identified and that we should know about? Yeah, so uh, well, just quickly on that thing about the Latino vote, that actually was a bit of a surprise to me as well, right? And that her, looking at the exit polls from her run, she got 62% of the Latino vote, which is higher than any of the other candidates got of the Latino vote who have exit poll data that we can actually compare to. Yeah, that is amazing and surprising. I think that's very, very little known fact. Yeah. So the biggest challenge for Stacey is this perception that she lacks readiness. She doesn't have enough experience, right? Which is, I think, a you know, pretty amorphous uh, critique, but it's one of the main things that, you know, is thrown out there against her and this idea that, you know, having been a state legislator, that she doesn't have what it takes to actually be the vice president, one heartbeat away from the presidency, et cetera. Yeah, I've, I've definitely heard that too. And I heard that from some people that like Stacey and are, are rooting for her, that they're concerned because they feel that that sounds like a compelling argument. They put their, themselves in the position of decision-making or being on the decision-making team. And uh, I'm just wondering, what do you think of that argument? 
Yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, I think it's BS, right? And, and it, it, frankly, it's the common critique or excuse, frankly, people put up against people of color and against women, and obviously against women of color, and that it's hard to refute because it's so amorphous, right? Um, but I think if this current crisis the country is in has shown us anything, that what America needs is leadership, intelligence, competence. And Stacey has all of that in spades. And also, it's just interesting that people, you know, we're all now, you know, pining for the days of Obama and how amazing he was. But that was one of the critiques they made against Obama, that he didn't have enough experience, right? And so Stacey actually has the same amount of elected experience as Obama did when he got elected. And then you can argue that over the past two years, since the uh, election of 2018, that Stacey's role in leadership in fighting voter suppression in the country and elevating that issue and through the work that she's done with Fair Fight and a lot of, many of the victories they've had in different places has been as consequential as what Obama was able to do during his two years in the Senate when he wasn't, they weren't able to actually pass much legislation, but he had that title and that platform. So that's the critique, but I think, and I do think it is something that's frequently applied primarily to women and people of color, but it's something that's out there and something that's gonna have to be addressed. Yes, and I think that interestingly, maybe ironically, but definitely interestingly, I read Stacy's book and she talks about that a lot. And she talked about that on our podcast episode that there's this double standard. There's the expectations are much, much higher for women of color, black women and I think there's a lot of BS there too, but it is unfortunately convincing BS that some people are buying into. So, okay, while we're on the topic of black women, let's go straight to also talk about Kamala. What, Steve, in your opinion, are her strengths and weaknesses? So Kamala, she's seen by many as one of the top candidates. Some of these uh, articles list her as the most uh, likely person to get selected. And so part of that is that, you know, she ran for president, um, and so she had that profile and she did, she did well in the debates. And so she's built more of a national identity, um, certainly over the past year. And in this mix of exactly who they pick and what is the balance. So the fact that she's a black woman is helpful to her candidacy and that she has a very compelling personality as well. And that really comes through, I think, in a lot of these you know, in the debates and then interacting with her. And so people are drawn to her on that level. And also that she's a fierce questioner, like as a lawyer, right? She would be on the, on the Judiciary Committee going after people that she really captured people's attention when she was um, grilling some of these different people Trump put forward. Yeah, I think fierce is the word that comes to my mind. And it's, it's very compelling. I remember how electrifying she was. I remember how much people got excited when she did. For some people, it was their first time seeing her in action when she was doing that grilling and even there were some moments on the debate stage where people were like, oh, wow, this is somebody who really can speak her mind, hold her ground, and conveys that, that type of quality that a lot of people are drawn to in a leadership, a type of leadership quality, tough and fearless. And at least when she's in her zone, man, she's really in her zone, and it, it's very compelling. And so, Steve, what about her challenges? What about Kamala's challenges? Well, it's that experience as a prosecutor that is really a double-edged sword. And I think it particularly presents a challenge with progressive voters. Biden is already seen as being very moderate in that he really needs to be able to win over Bernie voters, unify the party, put forward a vision and a, and a platform that brings everybody together. And Biden in particular has a very you know, sketchy track record on criminal justice bills as well. So 
Kamala's background in terms of district attorney and then attorney general raised questions. A lot of that came up during the primaries as well, that people had concerns and criticisms about had she been progressive or had she been not progressive and primarily um, pursuing a law enforcement agenda that was not in the interest of the Black community. And so fair or not, their perception is out there. And that's something that she's going to actually have to, to grapple with. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely hearing what you're saying and realizing that there, that's what I have heard from people in my circles say that their concerns are and that argument about whether or not she would then make the ticket stronger for Democrats and Biden. You know, I could see some people saying, well, that's a compelling argument too. And so I am just you know, wanting to push you further and say, like, what do you think about those criticisms? And what do you, you think that, she, is there anything that she can do about it? Well, I understand. I mean, I, I've known Kamala for over a decade, um, you know, close to her family. And so, and I was in politics in San Francisco. So I understand the dilemma that people of color have and women and around the, how do you overcome the inherent sexism and bias and the racism and bias that's within the electorate. And so I experienced that myself and I ran for assembly, state legislature, you know, I tried to portray myself as a businessman, it didn't work very well, but I tried to do that. And then Kamala very consciously identified herself as law enforcement. And I think that was as a way to try to overcome the implicit bias that different voters have. And so it worked for her thus far in terms of getting her to be a district attorney and then to be attorney general but now an electorate that's looking for uh, progressive champions, it is going to be more problematic. Yeah, that's, that's true. And we'll need to see how it all plays out. I wanted to next turn to talking about another individual who's been mentioned a lot in the running, and that is Catherine Cortez Masto. It's been reported and not really refuted that she's in, his, in Biden's top three uh, which sometimes I found a little surprising, but it has been reported that she's among his top three choices. What do you feel that she brings to the ticket? Yeah, so it was reported and not refuted. We don't, what we don't know is Biden going around to everybody saying, oh, you're in my top three. You're in my top three. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's a top three with like many, many people who think they're in the top three. Yeah, so it's entirely possible, but that's one of the things she has going for her is one of her big champions and boosters is um, Harry Reid. Right, is a major power broker in Nevada, is a former majority leader of the Senate, and has a long-standing relationship with Biden. So that he's pushing her, I think, will lead Biden to look at her seriously. And also that she's Latina, right? I think she's probably the, the leading Latina who's being considered right now um, for this position. So that's, that's an important consideration. Yeah, definitely. And that makes sense. I had only heard about her, by the way, a little bit over time, a little bit here and there. I've mentioned her to some of my friends, some people don't really know who she is, but I also know that she's also been named a lot in articles and for all the reasons that you just mentioned is among the top being considered. Julie, I am curious to check in with you how Catherine Cortez Master is viewed by the Latino community and just your thoughts. So yeah, I think frankly that is gonna be part of her challenge because while she is Latina, she's really downplayed that part of her identity for much of her political career and definitely not sort of made an effort to position herself on the national stage among uh, Latino communities as, as sort of a, a leader within that circle. And as a result, I think there's still not a lot of initial enthusiasm for her out there among uh, Latino voters. And it's, it, again, you know, sort of the way uh, Steve referenced for, uh, for Harris, there's sort of a Faustian bargain that um, 
you know, she's that I think all women and all people of color end up having to engage in, right? They face a lot of racism, a lot of sexism in the electorates. It's not always to their benefit to be too brash or too out there or to really position themselves as a Latina leader, right? And unfortunately, that sort of comes back to haunt you when you really kind of need to be able to bring that constituency with you. And I'd say sort of the, the reality is that Cortez Mastos is not really that well known at this point. And what we're seeing in exit polls really show that other folks like Stacey Abrams, obviously African-American, actually does better among Latinos than Cortez Mastos is able to do, right? And really just sort of minimally better, 62 to 61%, but you'd think a Latina would have had stronger performance, right? Given that she should be seen sort of as a, a person coming out of that community. And in the donor of color poll that uh, we mentioned earlier, her low name recognition really hurts her among all groups. And so she doesn't fare well in that poll at all, really, obviously with Latinos and API communities, but with African-Americans and whites, she's got the same challenges. All right. I appreciate the insight. And can I say, I, I was just getting triggered hearing between you giving your insight and Steve's feeling of the frustration of women of color, especially of a certain generation who had to downplay their women of colorness, you know, their identity, they, you know, the communities that they actually came from in order to make it as far as they did. And now it's working against them because they intentionally didn't play up that side anyway. It just feels like a no win. And all I can do is hope that the next generation doesn't have to deal with that as much. Yeah. And that's what's going to be fascinating <laughs> going forward, though, right, is that who's one of the most compelling, uh, widely known uh, progressive leaders in the country at uh, Ocasio-Cortez, yeah. right? Proud Puerto Rican New York, right? And so, and that part of what elicits so much backlash against her because she is so proud of who she is. So it's going to be fascinating yeah. to see how that plays itself out in terms of who you can be and how much you can embrace that identity and still rise in politics. Yeah, and I would say, but that's also part of a lot of her popularity is her authenticity and her yeah. unab unabashed pride in mm -hmm. who she fully is, including her racial and ethnic background. So yeah, it'll be all interesting to see how things change over time for each generation. Let's move on to the Midwest. I wanted to talk about Whitmer and Klobuchar and who are seen as identified with that region, the Midwest, and as identified as being able to help with getting more votes from that region. Steve, what's your assessment of them? Yes, well, as the, uh, the native Midwesterner from uh, Ohio, right, is uh, LeBron James's essays, before I was anything, I was a kid from Northeast Ohio. So it is interesting. I think that's one of the things we're going to talk about is actually, though, how the Midwest is not just a monolith. And I think that's one of the things that the media talks about in a way that is not helpful in terms of what we really actually need to do. But in terms of Whitmer specifically, so she's definitely enjoying a bit of a boomlet now. Um, because she's standing up to Trump in terms of responding to the coronavirus and he's been kind of trashing her and that raises her profile and has created a contrast, you know, of how Democrats are responding to this crisis versus how Trump is. And so a lot of people then, have, that's what really, I think, put her into this conversation. And then on top of that, right, she's from Michigan, which is part of that, you know, blue wall in the Midwest that Democrats are trying to rebuild. And so the concept is that because she's from the Midwest, because she has this, you know, growing profile that she'll be appealing across the Midwest to the voters that they want, especially white suburban women. And so that is kind of the cornerstone of the rationale for her candidacy. But it actually turns out, I think that that premise doesn't actually hold up. And then Julie, isn't that what the, uh, the donors of color poll showed? 
Yeah, you're right. Um, it was actually pretty surprising. So Whitmer is, in fact, very strong among all the demographic groups in her home state, right, in Michigan. But when you go right next door to Wisconsin, she's quite weak. So both um, Stacy and Kamala actually crush Whitmer in Wisconsin, even among white voters and white women. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm even surprised to hear that. And maybe that shows my bias about what I think about the Midwest and that I might be one of those people who make some assumptions about how each many of the states in the Midwest share similarities and how white voters might vote. And I think, I think that's just kind of opposite to what conventional wisdom might be. You know, I, right. I tweeted out once response to all because I always think about Trump voters and diners in the Midwest. And I again tweeted out, so I was like, raise your hand if you're from the Midwest and you know that there are at least as many black churches as there are <laughs> diners where white people hang out. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think a lot of people <laughs> raise their hand. <laughs> I, I think that it is, again, a lot of it is the narratives that we are fed by media where we get this image. Uh, I grew up on the East Coast, so I just didn't spend a lot of time in the Midwest. And I, I think that it's easy to get sucked into some of those stereotypes. It reminds me that in our interview last episode with uh, journalist Ron Brownstein, he talked about how there was a lot of buzz about Whitmer because of her perceived ability to reassure white voters across the Midwest. And I thought that was interesting that there's still that perception, in other words, that Ron was pointing out. Exactly. So the polling shows that Abrams and Harris are stronger among all of the voters of all races, in, particularly in uh, uh, Wisconsin. And so that's very counter to the conventional wisdom that is really propelling Whitmer's candidacy at the moment. Yeah, I just don't think enough people know about that. We feel like more people need to know that. So, okay, Steve, then what about Klobuchar? Lots of uh, surprisingly, or maybe not, a surprising number of opinion pieces out there and articles I've seen for Klobuchar. Yeah, there's a whole cottage industry of Republicans and moderate conservatives opining on what the Democrats should do. And so it's just quite fascinating. These are the people, there's like at least three people over the Washington Post who are like leading most of this discussion around the Democratic VP who are actually Republicans. So it's not surprising that they gravitate towards Klobuchar. But as I think about it, you know, frankly, I have to say it is interesting that she's had this persistence of uh, the viability of her prospects. She's so moderate, unapologetically so. And Biden's core identity is moderate. That it's really hard to imagine him picking her. She, just, she does so little to unify the party, to speak to the Bernie wing, etc. So I, I, I'm skeptical the ultimate that she's going to actually be on that final list. But I think the strengths are, you know, that she, she generally acquitted herself well in the campaign. People, people thought that she was... Um, you know, a strong candidate. You know, she had that iconic uh, announcement or kickoff in the driving snowstorm in uh, Minnesota, or that whole Marshall McLuhan thing about the medium being the message, Midwestern, you know, toughness. So, you know, and that's kind of the essence of it. Like she's the classic picture of the stereotype of a Midwestern white woman. And that is the, there's a sector of the democratic strategies who think that's the focus of what needs to actually be targeted. And so that's the, that's the essence of her, her appeal. And I was just chuckling when you said like the quintessential picture of her being the definition of Midwestern white woman. I pictured like a dictionary where you open it up and Midwestern white woman, you see a picture of Klobuchar. 
And, and, you know, for her, she probably would be like, great, I achieved my goal because it right. seems like that's what she was going for. I am curious on your thoughts about what about her weaknesses then? I mean, you kind of touched upon them, but once you yeah, have well, anything it, else to say about that. It, I think it's worth, it's worth emphasizing that she does terribly with and has no relationship with people of color. And it was actually was surprising me during the primary that she was originally not planning to go to South Carolina for the Martin Luther King Day celebration. And so they didn't realize that was important. And so somebody had actually had to tell them and they had to rearrange their schedule, et cetera. And so it played out in the primary. Right? She got 2% of the black vote, 4% of the Latino vote in Nevada. So that's going to be seriously problematic. Um, and then what didn't come up as much during the primary election, but I have friends who are involved in the immigration reform movement who are very, still very bitter about the role she played in blocking immigration reform. So that's another reality that uh, she'll have to deal with. Yeah, and let me just emphasize the point about the breadth of her appeal. So Klobuchar's appeal is mainly limited to just white voters. And you contrast that with Stacey and Kamala, who are strong with people of color and with white voters. So, you know, if you have to choose, I think it's a pretty clear um, choice there. Okay, so we've gone all this time, and we haven't yet talked about Elizabeth Warren, who... I've said before on this podcast, was one of the candidates this year, this cycle that I was most excited about. I think I'm finally moved on, but it was definitely, <laughs> it was definitely a hard moment when she dropped out yeah. for me and a lot of women who were excited about her. But the fact that you do sometimes hear about her as a possibility for VP, what would she bring to the ticket? And what are her actual prospects for getting chosen to be Biden's VP? Yeah, I think it's the prospects part that's the biggest obstacle. I think that's probably why there isn't a ton of buzz about her, which is it's almost surprising because she has a lot of appeal. She appeals, is very strong among the Bernie people. Young people really like her a lot. Um, certainly a number of the black activists uh, sector like her. So she brings things that Biden doesn't have. But I think the bigger issue is that she, the things that excite people are the things which on some level are going to disqualify her in Biden world is that she's so progressive and so unapologetically um, aggressive with the going after the banks and going after Wall Street. And there's a lot of Biden's friends, right, in terms of that whole dynamic. And so there's just, I don't think there's going to be a comfort level internally in his campaign. And then I think also that he's trying to go this like unity healing after all the chaos of Trump. And so her wanting to really take on the folks who have, you know, brought down the, uh, you know, fostered inequality in this country. Um, I think they're going to think that works against that message of unity. Yeah. And I know you've talked to me before and you've mentioned the fact that because of how well she did in the primary and that she ran for president, that, you know, maybe she's not even interested yeah, so it's a question of leadership, right? That I think that it's, it's not just a question of what position that you have, right? I mean, uh, and it, but it's who is a, seen as a leader. In the, I mean, uh, Ocasio-Cortez is a perfect example, right? She's a junior member, or, you know, the first, second year in um, Congress, first term person. Yes, she's a national leader, not by virtue of her position, but by virtue of her vision and her base and her resonance. And Warren has that same platform and network now. And I frankly think she would be muzzled as vice president. And, I, and that's why I also think that she may not even want the position, frankly. Yeah. And did you want to talk about, and it's not always comes off as totally PC to talk about, but the age thing. Yeah, well, that's the other issue, right? Is that she is a 70 year old white woman. So we're really going to put forward 
ticket of two 70 plus year old white people um, as we're trying to inspire and galvanize and mobilize a multiracial, much younger electorate. So that's a reality, although it's an interesting dimension of the primary election is that most young people were most enthusiastic about the 78-year-old Bernie, right? So you can't just equate the age piece in that regard, but in terms of the optics, it definitely may be a consideration. Yeah, and that a ton of young people were excited about Elizabeth Warren, you know, so that was not a barrier for her either, but maybe the concept of, in some people's minds, well, if for some reason the president cannot serve, then if the other person is in the same age bracket, you know, where does that leave us? I don't know. Um, It's interesting. Everyone has their own take. So, you know, now that we've assessed these different individuals, strengths and weaknesses of all of the potential candidates, wanted to just check in quickly with you on what do you think happens next? And what about the process? What, where do we go from here? Yeah, so it, it, it's game on in deep stakes. I and mean, there's hashtags out there now, deep stakes, right? It's the favorite parlor game among people who are, you know, political junkies and whatnot. And the actual process is kicking into high gears. We were talking about, they're going to be hiring lawyers to dig through the backgrounds of each of these people. They're going to be doing polling and testing to see who plays well and doesn't play well with different demographics and whatnot. And everybody's going to have their opinion right around who should and shouldn't be the person. So it's going to be a pretty crazy and chaotic six to eight weeks. And hopefully Biden will end up by doing the right thing. But I think, you know, we're, it, it's probably a month and a half to two months out. I, mean, I had heard before that they were going to try to choose somebody earlier just to really somewhat expand the, the load of who can help carry the load, as well as I think to kind of give a boost to the campaign, particularly since they can't get out there and, and do that much. This is kind of what commands attention. So I wouldn't be surprised late May, early June, that they actually both select and announce who the person's going to be. Yeah, and I've just become somebody who checks politics and political news more regularly. That's probably good for good for me, but can't help but check. And it, it's exciting and to kind of see like what's the new development. And I will say that Biden could definitely use a boost. You know, whenever I check the news, I'm like, yeah, it's it's not like he's doing stuff on his own that's making great strides for his own cause. And yeah, you know, with I, I joked with some people that perhaps <laughs> the best thing is for Biden to not campaign. And yeah. to let the image, the positive image of who he could potentially be, be out there. Because he does not, he's not an electric campaigner, which is why he needs the right VP. Yeah, and that, in, that injection of energy and excitement and for people who may not be totally jazzed about his candidacy to get excited about some part of it, about some part of his ticket, about some part of the, the party moving towards November. And so, like I've always said, I'm still a Stacey stan. I've tried to you know, avoid getting too involved in social media and Twitter conversations where people are saying, no, this I'm for this person, I'm for this person. But uh, I definitely am. And I just keep thinking that, you know, I'm waiting for that moment, uh, hope, hoping that that'll be the news that I hear. But I realize we'll see what happens. And I realize that I will get on board with whatever So that's it for this episode. Julie, I wanted to thank you for joining us and I wanted to wish you and your family a healthy time together, healthy and safe quarantine and shelter in place and uh, wish you as a fellow mom who's working and trying to do homeschooling and cafeteria lady and cleaning lady and all that. (laughs) Wishing you good luck until I get to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you. It's, It's a challenge, especially with a teenager, I'm telling you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I can, I can only imagine. I know that I have a little kid, but big kid, 
sometimes bigger problems. And I was thinking you, you and I should just do like parenting while pandemic podcast episode because <laughs> there's so much to talk about, if only like for me to just vent. Oh, by the way, Steve, I know we want to wrap up, but I recently had this brilliant idea because my kid has these windows of time where I'm working and she's looking for stuff to do. I was like, we should get Steve to do a, a class, Julie, online Zoom class for kids on politics. And the kids can watch for an hour and it'll be like Uncle Steve's political class. And then we, you and I can like go take a walk or go online shopping. And then Steve can be like, kids, let me tell you about the first time I met Jesse Jackson. I love it. Let me tell you about the Rainbow Coalition. All these stories <laughs> I've told over the years in the staff meetings are now coming back. You'll yeah. have a, you'll have a ca captive right. audience right. and we'll, we'll give them like a prize if they sit through the whole thing. Well, maybe they'll be inspired, become future orators. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, stay safe, virtually hug your loved ones, and keep the